Is your business plan very unclear and you're tirelessly working at a low-paying career? Let's help you get out of the rut and let go of the fear. It's time to excel into the million-dollar stratosphere. Now, here's your host of The Balanced Millionaire, who will take you there, Eileen Mendel. This is Eileen Mendel, your host of The Balanced Millionaire. Our mission is to bring inspiration and various tips and uh, education to business owners and entrepreneurs so they can build their businesses and understand how to have a successful business without the stress and balance and have balance in their lives in terms of their health relationships time and money freedom and have a successful million dollar or more business so today we have with us a very special guest his name is tom ross and he is actually uh, based in the uk and his firm is international. It's called Design Cuts. He is the CEO and founder of Design Cuts, a multi-seven-figure business that is international. And we're going to learn today how he built his business and some tips on how he relates to his customers, as well as other um, tips on how he markets his business and what makes him unique. And... Um, both him and his company, Unique. So Tom hosts a popular show called Honest Designers Show, and he's most recently been interviewed on The Future, The Logo Geek Podcast, Perspective Collective, Feasting on Design, and many others. He's going to uh, show us today how he's engaged a community of creative, around creative work, building a loyal fan base, and marketing yourself as a creative. He loves helping designers expand their businesses, and as such, regularly coaches top designers such as Lauren Horn, Ian Bernard, Stefan Kunz, Chris Spooner, Jacob Cass, and Scotty Russell. Welcome, Tom. Welcome to our show. We're excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Eileen. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. So, Tom, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started? And um, what was your educational background? What was your background previous to starting your business? It's been varied, to be honest. I have been deep in the space from a very young age, from about the age of 12. And I remember it very clearly. I was 12 years old. I was round my best friend's house and we were sat in front of his computer and this was much earlier stage internet. And I remember he right clicked on a web page and hit view source and it spat out all the HTML that made up the web page. And it blew my mind because I turned to him and went, you, you're telling me people build these things? This is nuts. I had no idea. And so from there, that really started it all. And we would start building websites for many years after that, creating all these fun projects and he kind of went more down the path of coding and development. I got heavy into design, including brand design, web design, that kind of thing, um, and also marketing and internet marketing and that whole space. And so I've loved from that young age learning design and marketing in tandem. I really enjoy the marriage of those two things. I'm actually speaking at Birmingham Design Festival soon about exactly that, the marriage of design and marketing and how both can really help one another. And it's something I'm really passionate about. That being said, I've done this in all my spare time. I've put in all the hours uh, over the years. My parents talked me out of going and doing a design or marketing degree. So they told me, go and get a real degree. So I went and studied English. And that was fine. But in 
all those months where I wasn't really bothering to read Paradise Lost and I was helping my friends on <laughs> design and marketing courses with their, their coursework. Um, I mean, I had a great time at college, but I wouldn't say I've used it a tremendous amount since then. So you never got a formal marketing degree. This is something that you had passion about and you pretty much learned on your own. And uh, yeah, I laud you for that. And how did you, did you have um, a talent uh, to, um, or an eye for design, or is that something that you always knew that you had? I think so, to be honest. And saying that, I was terrible for a lot of years. I didn't walk out the gate at 12 years old and become a successful designer, but I always had artistic tendencies. I always did pretty well at school with art. I loved to draw. And so I think the design was quite a natural fit. Um, but as I say, it took a lot of years, a lot of trial and error. And it wasn't for at least five years that I started getting much more steady client work. I eventually kind of built a fairly successful freelance career and then pivoted that into blogging, building up some larger blogs. And, and eventually all of that led me to my company. But I talk a lot about overnight success and how it doesn't exist in my content and I'm such a firm believer of that because it has been thousands and thousands of hours and trial and error and going down the wrong path and then learning something new that was a better fit. And just it's been a very convoluted path, I think, especially because of a lack of formal structure or education. It really has just been figuring it out as I go. Um, no shortcuts. I think a lot of the listeners can probably identify with that. Uh, many, um, and I know with myself, with my very first business, it was trial and error. I made a lot of mistakes along the way, and I knew, like, I'll never do that again, <laughs> made a mental <laughs> note. Um, so what were some of the big challenges or the big things that uh, you had to get over to learn, like, that's not the way to do it, this is the way to do it? Can you give yeah. us some examples? Mm -hmm. Sure, I can give you the biggest example for me, actually. So I I like to think I'm a nice person, and I always loved the sense of building a community, getting to know people, interacting with people, and, and that side of marketing. But after doing that for a few years, I would be dabbling in stuff like fan sites for my favorite bands and little blogs and get immersed in those kinds of communities. And I was doing a lot of things right in hindsight. You know, I was building connections. I was becoming a part of my community. I was caring about people and my readers. But after a few years of doing that, I wasn't really seeing any traction or success. And so then I started educating myself on internet marketing. I thought, well, if I'm not kind of blowing up and I'm not this huge success yet, obviously it couldn't be to do with my lack of talent. Obviously it couldn't be to do with my lack of patience. It had to be because what I was doing right then wasn't the right approach and wasn't working. Or so I thought. So what did I do? I jumped on Google and I literally searched like how to do internet marketing. And I'm sure, Eileen, you can imagine the kind of stuff that came up, right? Yes. Sleaze City, right? Exactly. But that was it. You know, that was the stuff I was fed. Even to this day, you need to do some serious digging to find stuff that isn't sleazy because these, you know, big, big names and, and these sleazy people in the industry, they're optimized very well. They're the ones normally buying the ads and getting first page on Google and so on. So that's what I was consuming. And I looked at their success or their purported success. And I thought, well, I guess the way I've been doing it is wrong. And I guess the way to do it is to focus on vanity metrics like traffic and to uh, focus entirely all my efforts on like my funnel and all of those kind of marketing cliches. And so for a few years there, it led me down a path where I wasn't doing anything too sleazy or too shady myself, but it really pulled my focus away from what I love to do the most. But the silver lining was, despite that mistake, it gave me a great grounding in some of these marketing principles, which when done the right way, are highly, highly effective. So now I like to think I've got the best of both worlds because I found some better business mentors. I re-educated myself and I came out the other side more passionate than ever about building real communities, not worrying about vanity metrics, realizing it's not how many people there are in your audience, it's how much they care. 
all of these really fantastic things. But I was able to layer on top of that stuff about pre-launches and sales funnels and some of these marketing fundamentals. But when you do them in a non-sleazy way and you layer them on top of a fantastic product and a really engaged, loyal community, then they kind of put each other on steroids. So my biggest mistake, ironically, my biggest mistake, ironically, was actually, you know, a blessing in disguise because it, it let me cut my chops in both disciplines. So what would you recommend to those who are just starting out and they want to build a business, but they want to do it, like you said, in a non-sleazy way? Um, what would you recommend? Where, where, where would they start? Because like you said, a lot of these bells and whistles are being thrown at us. Um, and I've fallen into that myself. I said, oh, you know, this sounds good. It sounds like something I haven't tried before. Let me learn how to, you know, make my own videos or let me learn how to do a funnel. You know, and I've, I've done this and that and then I've been disappointed. So what would you uh, recommend now that you've been through all of these things and probably much more intensively than I have? Um, <laughs> I don't know about that, but um, I think you can't get it in reverse right so don't put the tactics first there's a time and place and they can amplify a solid foundation but you have to focus on the fundamentals you have to focus on things like your product and more specifically product market fit so really i would focus on those basic things what value are you able to provide is there a market for your product what is the competition like all of those kind of business basics they really really matter and without that, all the marketing tactics and hacks in the world aren't really going to get you anywhere. So when my company took off, it went from zero to a million dollars in the first year. And that was with no funding, no real costs, just hard work and time, no investment, like nothing like that. And it just exploded. And that's because we had a tremendous product, mar product market fit. The market we were serving loved our product. It was very unique. It was incredible value for them and they jumped all over it. And so any marketing efforts we led on top of that were able to amplify out exponentially. If we had a terrible product, none of that would have happened. So can you tell me uh, the steps that you took? You said that you grew the business from zero to a million dollars. What did you do to make that happen as far as um, the product, like you said, the product fit to what the customers were demanding and also the approaches to reaching those customers. Sure. So actually not as much as you might think. And don't get me wrong, like there was unbelievable amounts of hard work. I was working 18 hour days, seven days a week to the point I put myself in the hospital and had major surgery, which is a whole other story on the back wow. of overwork. Um, but Despite all that intensity, it really boiled down to a few fundamental pillars. One of them was product market fit. So that was really essential. The other thing was a great launch event. We had a launch event that really got things started with a bang. We had some fantastic partners sharing that and part of that. And that really kind of got some initial traction instead of launching cold to no one. And then finally, rather than having some crazy distribution plan, my distribution plan was actually... Let's not worry about how many members we have or how many customers we have. Let's just care unbelievably deeply about the ones we have. So instead of trying to do all this crazy distribution stuff and marketing tactics, actually it was more predicated on customer service. So it was forming the deepest, most fulfilling relationships with our first 50, 100, 200, 2,000 customers. It was getting to know everything about them. It was building these really really lovely friendships with them and because of that combined with the product market fit they told their friends because there was no one else doing that everyone was so faceless and cold and impersonal and so we simply and i simply cared so deeply about them that they were just raving about us to everyone they knew and so that was our growth in our marketing in our first year we now do some more sophisticated stuff on the marketing front but really i think those fundamentals are what did it 
And is that something you um, you developed on your own, or did you actually have advisors, and did you have already a core group of people that were working with you to develop, like I said, the, the, the marketing, you know, identifying the marketing fit and doing the pre-launch event? So, you know, I know you mentioned partners. So how did you um, – did you – I know you said you worked 18-hour days – was that with the help of some uh, trusted uh, advisors or core group of people as well? So the, the company has shareholders and co-directors. Okay. But at that point, I was the only full-time person. They had their other ventures. They had helped build the platform. So they'd help kind of code it, provide some infrastructure and things of that nature. But I was essentially the only full-time member of the team. Um, so yeah, I, I was definitely the only one pulling the 18 hour days. I'll put it that way. And when you, um, developed your program or your distribution plan for those 50 to a hundred customers, did you do any market research, um, have conversations with them uh, uh, before you went ahead and did the launch event? For instance, uh, did you do a survey or did a, um, you know, some, some, uh, focus groups or what, what did you do to identify what they wanted and how to serve them the best? We didn't really do any of that. I just had a very deep awareness of the industry because I'd been in it for so long. I'd been an established blogger. I had a lot of, uh, decent contacts in the industry from my time spent in it producing content. And so when we launched, we, we didn't really necessarily have an audience. A lot of it was done just through the attention that the launch event garnered. But in terms of market research, I did what I like to call the David Bowie method. <laughs> and so um, I never know, Bowie or Bowie, I always get so, so much contention. People are never sure. What do you say, Eileen? Um, well, my friends who love him uh, say Bowie. <laughs> David Bowie. Bowie. David Bowie, yeah. I think that's better. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the David Bowie method. And I read a while back that what he used to do when he was writing his lyrics is he would get a bunch of almost random words and then he would rip them up and he'd put them in a circle around him and he'd sit on the floor and he'd almost piece them together like a puzzle until he had something compelling and original. And I, I really love that idea. So one of the lessons that I picked up from some of my mentors and just my trial and error over the years was you should always try and be number one in your field because no one's going to want to buy from you if you're the fifth best option. And I made this mistake for years where I would see someone doing a million dollars in revenue and I would think, oh, if I just do 10% as good a job as them, then I'm going to make a hundred grand, right? Right. And of course, that's nuts because why would they want something 10% as good? They would just go and get the best thing. And so when I started this company, I felt I had a lot of clarity on how to do that. And what I did was I sat on the floor and at this point I was, I was younger. I was away on vacation with my parents and with my girlfriend. And I just went upstairs and I sat on the floor and I audited every competitor in this space. And. I wrote their strengths and their weaknesses and everything about how they were doing. I would send them emails from a customer service perspective and see how they performed. I would look at their branding. I would look at their, their design, their product quality, everything. And this was so helpful because when I finished, I had this giant ring of content around me as I sat on the floor and I could systematically work out how to be the best in every single area. So, for example, I was like, okay, none of their designs are responsive and mobile friendly, which was nuts because even though this is a few years ago, we were in the design space and they should have been ahead of the curve there. So I thought, well, if I do these things and I make it mobile friendly and so on, then it's going to have the best design out of the competitors. And then I would do the same thing with analyzing product quality and price and, and customer service. And I would just go, yep, I'm going to beat all of them in customer service by doing this strategy. I'm going to beat them on product quality and value by doing this strategy. So yeah, in the early days of conceiving of how, how the company could get that best fit and that ultimate traction in the market, what I did was something I like to call the David Bowie technique. And what David Bowie used to do is 
he would sit on the floor and he would rip up all these random words. He'd put them in a giant circle around him and then he would pick them out and try and combine them in an order that would be compelling and original and help him create some, you know, in, incredibly impressive lyrics. And I loved that concept. So I basically executed the same thing with our fit within our market. And I know over the years, a very bad mistake I made was I thought if someone was making a million dollars, that to make a hundred grand, I had to just be 10% as good as they were, which is nuts because of course, no one would want the thing that was 10% as good as the best thing. They would just go and buy the best thing. And so I used this David Bowie approach to systematically become better than all the competitors. And I analyzed every competitor on the scene at the time. And I went through and I worked out everything from their website design and branding to their product quality, to their product value, their customer service, every pillar of all those businesses. And I would grade them out of 10, literally. And then I would work out and strategize how I could exceed them and excel past that in each area. So I worked out, okay, I'm going to do this and offer better customer service. I'm going to do this and have a nicer looking website. I'm going to do this and have better product prices. And piece by piece by piece, I kind of moved into a position of being the best in that particular pillar. And when you're the best in every pillar, then you can hands down say you are the best option in that market because there's no one, no one beating you out of all your competition on any front. And that exercise was really fun. I've done an episode on my show recently about this and I just recommend anyone giving it a try because you might have to niche down. You might have to come at it from a different angle. It's not like I'm about to go and become better than Google or some huge player like that. But if you find like that special pocket or that special niche that you feel like you're passionate about operating in, really take a look at how people are doing things. And oftentimes they've become apathetic or lazy or they're kind of dragging their feet, resting on their laurels. And you can come in with a bit of common sense and ambition and just systematically work out how to beat them in every area and ultimately become the best option for the consumers in that market. I love that approach. And it makes so much sense. Um, coming from my business school background, yeah, we would map out, you know, things like that on the, you know, the grid of, you know, product quality versus mm -hmm. customer service and, you know, put down the competition, put a yeah, bullet, uh, put a little point there where the competition was and where I wanted to be, you know, that, yeah. And, and so you, you did that without even having a formal training, but that's actually what most people should be doing. Like you said, um, to figure out where they want to be in terms of being the best, particularly in the key areas that make the big difference. So you already pinpointed those areas that would uh, stand out in your industry and in your field. And you then measured your competition as to, you know, how they stood out, you know, and uh, where they were in those various areas. And like you said, a lot of companies get lazy. Maybe at the beginning when they started out, they did that exercise, but then they forget to do it. So you basically, mm -hmm. um, did that and you were able to get ahead of the competition I, yeah i love that stuff and you know what's really compelling for your yes. customers in terms of your marketing when you can confidently and honestly say that you're the best option for them because that's great because i think <laughs> it's really difficult to market when in the back of your mind you know that your competitors are better than you if it, you know it lurks back there you can't confidently say come and buy from me we're great when you're like actually if, uh, you know, if my life depended on it, if I had to give you the best option for your needs, I would recommend someone else instead of myself. That's not a, a good place to market from. So I really think it's so fundamental to try and find that angle to be the best in your space. Absolutely. And how did you convey that to the customer? Um, was that through, like you said, uh, the, the initial 50 to 100 customers you relied? You, I mean, they... You did everything to convince them, so it was. It sounded like there was a lot of word of mouth referral from your own customers, from your initial pool of customers. Is that is that right, or how did you get that word out that you were the best in those areas? Yeah, you're right. It was a lot of word of mouth, um, and to be honest, maybe this is because I'm British, so 
we're, we're a bit more reserved with our marketing and that kind of stuff. Um, but I didn't shout about it a lot. I just made sure that we did the best job and then people picked up on that. So we weren't screaming and shoving it down their throat saying, we are the best, we are the best. But they just experienced it. So, that, you know, when they interacted with us on social media or email, they got customer service, which blew their mind. When they came to our site, they found just the best products that they wanted to shout from the rooftops at unbelievable value. And when things are that good, you don't need to constantly reinforce by saying you're the best because people pretty quickly work it out. I, I definitely agree with you. Um, I'm the kind of person <clears throat> myself who's more reserved in terms of, you know, I don't scream and shout that, you know, about my own services, but I see a lot of my competitors, you know, jumping up and down and saying I'm the best. And, you know, to me, that's a turnoff. You know, when mm-hmm. I, when I see somebody boasting that they're the best, but I don't have no evidence. And then I talk to some of their customers and their customers even tell me they would never work with them again. I know <laughs> that, you know, this is all a fabrication and, you know, it's, um, it's just a marketing, like you said, it gets to be sleazy marketing. And, um, yeah. because there's no proof. I have no evidence, you know, from their customers or from them, anything they've told me to let me know that they're the best. So, um, when you built your team, how did you, um, get the people on board that were the right fit for the culture you wanted to build. Can you, can you um, tell me what were your, what was your thinking now that you, you know, looked at the product quality? um, Did you immediately attract people who were wanting to be part of you, your business, or did you go out and find those people yourself and, and, um, and woo them away from wherever they were and, and identify them. How, how did you how did you get your team built? Not that well for a while. Um, and I never want to speak badly of anyone. Um, but I would say we didn't make all of the best hires all of the time. And that just came down to experience. So some of our early hires still with us today, six years on. Unbelievable, just incredible people. Um, and other people, maybe they were a better fit somewhere else for various reasons and it didn't work out. But all of that stuff comes from experience because I hadn't done it before. I'd hired remote part-time staff over the internet, but I'd never managed a full-time team. I'd never been a manager. And so I made a ton of errors myself. It was a whole new journey of trial and error. I really had to just cut my chops in terms of learning management, learning how to build a culture. It was all new. And I think a lot of it comes down to intent. So when you genuinely care and you care about your people and you want to do a good job and you might not get every decision right in the micro sense, but I think hopefully people can recognize that and see that and see you caring. That's hugely important. But it's taken six years and we're still refining our practices. We still don't get hiring right 100% of the time. But if you like, I can tell you our, our kind of basic process now, which we've refined, which I'm pretty happy with. Yes. Well, why don't you why don't you share that with us? Because I actually work with a number of clients that um, are looking to build their team, and I've given them you know some information on um, how to build the best team, but there's still frustration, uh, you know, in terms of communication and management. So um, please share that with us. Thank you. Absolutely. So it really depends what kind of team they're trying to build. I think for a lot of people, the idea of having a full-time member of staff uh, in the UK, we need to pay their pensions and national insurance and all these kinds of of legal things. Uh, that's very scary for people. So a lot of the time, if they're a solopreneur and they're looking just to get a bit of help, I advise something like Upwork, where they can find remote freelancers. And that's a great toe in the water. And it's very low risk. Uh, so I think that can certainly be a great option and you can just very gradually scale that up. So you could literally, I've had people who work 30 minutes a month for me who are remote freelancers and it just means that's 30 minutes that I don't need to deal with that particular job. And that works great. Equally, I've had people that work a few days a month for me, um, or a few days every week. And 
I think that stuff is awesome because you can just piece by piece by piece take stuff off your plate and delegate it out. Um, and then, as I say, it's very low risk. So you're not tied in with any of those employment contracts and so on. But if you're looking to build a full-time, especially in-house team, how we tend to do it now is we have a real rock-solid interview process. So we start with getting the job ads out, working with recruiters and that kind of thing. And then we have a series of phone interviews. And what I've learned, or one of the lessons I've learned about hiring is, if there's any red flags or you feel at all on the fence, you shouldn't hire that person. Because those little gut feelings really matter. And those little red flags, even if they're super innocuous, they tend to exponentially explode over time. So if on that initial phone interview, someone was slightly cold, it could mean in two years time, they're bullying other team members and being a complete nightmare. Like it really does kind of grow out from that initial uh, seed. And I've seen that time and time again, where there's, you know, in hindsight, you get these tiny little subtle telltale signs at the interview phase. Um, so anything that kind of just sticks out in a negative way, I tend to write people off. And I know that might sound ruthless, but we just learned it's the best way because the truly great people are pretty perfect to interview. You know, they, they might get a little bit nervous. Um, that's fine. But as long as they're like, they know their stuff and they're inherently a really nice person and that shows, then, then that's generally a good sign. So after we have the rounds of telephone interviews, we then get people in, um, the people that make it to that next stage. We sit down and we have a really candid, job interview with them face to face with myself and any of the relevant people uh, involved in that process managers and so on and i think it's super important another lesson i learned is to be incredibly transparent about what the role is because i used to almost try and oversell the role to get them because i was excited about it i try and get them excited about it and that's a bad idea because in oftentimes you make it sound even better than it is and that's 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 not great because then you're you're setting too high an expectation and then you don't want to under deliver on that so now i almost do the opposite thing and there's been interviews where i will try and tell people some of the worst aspects of the role and almost put them off of it because if they really really still want it at the end of that then not only are they likely going to be the right fit but they're going to be really really excited when they start and they're like oh this is even better than i hoped for so I'm not saying make it sound terrible or anything like that, but whatever you do, don't try and like romance them into it by like really doing a sales pitch. And you want to be the confident, assertive one. You don't want to be pandering to them with like, please love this job and please come and work for us because that just sets a bad tone. Um, so that was another learning lesson. Um, and then something we do if the interview goes well, the sit down interview, we take them down and we get them to meet the team. So they will sit there, the whole team gather around and we say, look, there's no pressure. Like this is not like the formal interview pit. This is super casual. And then every team member will fire random questions at them, like silly questions like what's your favorite food or your favorite drink or where would you most love to visit and just stuff like that. And then I just sit back for like 15 minutes or however long this goes on for and I just sit back and watch because this shows you how they're going to interact with the team. And some of them really excel at this point. We've had people who are great at the formal interview and they go down there and they're kind of like funny or they're like cut someone off or be a little bit rude. And again, that's a red flag. Or we've had some people that we think are great at the formal interview stage, but they come down there and really open up because they get a, a lot less nervous and they start bonding and laughing and getting on with the team and the whole team love them. And not only is that good for getting the right person, but the team actually feel invested and involved in that decision of who joins them. Um, and I think that's a really powerful thing. And then the final stage is um, we've added on a trial shift. And this might be like two to four to six hours. But it's so important because we've had people that do really great at all the other things. And then when they actually sit down and try and do the job and just kind of begin their training before they've been hired, it falls apart. And it turns out they've oversold themselves. They've done a really, really shining job in the interview, but actually they're not really capable with the job. So that's that's pretty much the whole process we've reached right now, and it saves a lot of headaches down the line. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, we're going to go to a break right now. We'll be right back, so stay with us, everyone. We've got Tom Ross, and he'll be on the second half of our program. 
My business has lost its upward momentum. I'm working up to 14 hours a day, but my sales seem to have plateaued. I'm so overwhelmed. I used to have that same problem, but ever since I found the Balanced Millionaire Consulting Firm, our sales and profits have risen sharply. Even our staff is more engaged, and the atmosphere is full of energy. I have no time to work on my business to develop new sales and marketing strategies. I would love to expand, have strategic partnerships, and access to financing. You can do all of that and more. The Balanced Millionaire Consulting Team advises you on streamlining your operations, establishing alliances, and most importantly, increasing your revenues and profits. Let us help you build value and reduce stress in your business. Take charge. Don't let your business control your life. Visit TheBalancedMillionaire.com or call 442-224-0160 for a free consultation. That's 442-224-0160 or TheBalancedMillionaire.com. I am Eileen Mendel, founder and CEO of The Balanced Millionaire. Who are we and what is our mission? We are a strategic business advisory firm dedicated to advancing leadership and business growth. Listen to what our clients have to say about us. I was blessed to meet Eileen. She has done numerous things for my business, from giving me professional advice to introducing me to new connections and going as far as finding me new team members. I cannot say enough about her and her business for the help they have given to my company. I've been working with the Balanced Millionaires team. They've helped me in setting up a concrete plan to get my business to the next level. Eileen is a cheering, inspiring and benevolent advisor. Knowing that she's gone through the same challenges gives me the confidence that I'm on the right track. If you are a growing seven or eight figure business that is ready to reach new heights, contact us at info at thebalancedmillionaire.com. That's info at thebalancedmillionaire.com. Welcome back from our break, everyone. I've got Tom Ross. And he is from Design Cuts, and he's going to tell us more about how he built his multi-seven-figure business. And uh, right now, we we uh, are going to delve into how did he, how did you build your community of your fan base and your client base? How did you, how did you do that, Tom? Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's a great question, Eileen, and I love community building. It's one of my favorite things. It's one of my pillars of how I grow businesses and and grow brands. And I just think it's so powerful because we touched on this before. It's not about how many people follow you, right? It's about how much the people care that do follow you. Yes. And so I've become obsessed with how do I get people to care? How do I get people to engage? How do I build relationships with them? How do I provide them with as much value as I humanly can? And there's a few things I've learned over the years, trial and error, and, and through business mentors that I really try and live by. And one of them is from a former business mentor, and I really think this is genius, who said, don't use your audience, serve them. And I'm going to say that again, so that sinks in for the listeners. Don't use your audience, serve them. Because I think 99.9% of people right now on the internet are using their audience. They are trying to extract stuff from them, whether it's money, email signups, like whatever it might be. It's just use, use, use. It's why my LinkedIn inbox is full of people spamming me and it's paper thin. I can see exactly what they want. They don't want to help me. They don't want to give me any kind of value. They don't want to bring anything. They just want me to do something for them. And I think that's how the vast majority of people are treating their followers, their customers, their audience. And it sucks. And so... What I like to do is try and flip that on its head. And as per my mentor's advice, serve my audience. Get into that mindset that you work for them. You know, you really, your job is just to make them happy and to bring them value. And then it's just a case of having some fun with like how far you can push that concept. And I like to push it very, very, very far. So the way I think about this is imagine, Eileen, if you had one customer or one audience member and that was it 
you would get to know that person inside out, right? right. They'd be like your best friend because that's all you've got. You've just got that one person. So I would like to think you would know everything about them. You'd open up and share stuff about yourself. You'd know about their family and their life. And you'd be on a phone call every day and you'd just be giving them that five-star service all the time because if you lost them, that would be horrible. And you should get to like each other, build this friendship. And, you know, that would be a beautiful thing where they're your most loyal client, they're your only client, and you just treat them perfectly and fantastically. So the trick is, like, how do you scale that? Or how do you get as close as you can to that at scale? So it's easy with one customer. It's harder with 10 customers, and it's certainly harder with our 500,000 customers. But I really think most people who worry about this stuff, they haven't got 500,000 customers yet. They might have 12 or 2 or 0. And so there's so many people out there who haven't even built a customer base yet, let alone a successful business. And they're not caring about the 14 people they already have in their audience. They're desperately focused on trying to get the next 14. I always say this. It's like a phone contract, right? right. What do they do? They romance you in with a compelling offer. They treat you super nice, and then as soon as you've signed up, they pretty much ignore you, they hike their prices up, and they're romancing the next 1,000 customers. And that's what most people do with, for example, their Instagram followings, their social media followings, and it's a really, really bad tactic. I think what you need to do is care about the people you already have and try and keep that one customer principle in mind. So even if you do have 100 customers, when we had 100 customers at Design Cuts, I was literally jumping on phone calls with them, asking, how can I serve you better? How can I do a better job? What would you like to see on the site? What don't you like? What do you like? I just want to do better for you. And that's all I did, 18 hours a day. That was a big part of it. I think that's a very important um, point you just made because that's something I've seen as um, I've well, I've been in business for over 30 years um, in various roles in business. And what I'm seeing over the last decade or so has been um, what you just described. You know, you jump on, you know, you jump on with the provider, whether it's a, a phone company or a marketing company or whatever it is. And then the next thing after they've got your business, you can't even get a hold of them to... <laughs> Resolve an issue. There's it's the customer frustrating, service. right? Right, exactly. Because now they figured they've locked you in as a customer, and you know you're not going to be jumping to their competition. Although you're thinking about it very strongly, how can I get out of this situation? Because they're not serving <laughs> me. Mm -hmm. And so you're doing just the opposite. You're focusing on who is your customer, and allowing that to be your strength and um, to retain and serve the current customers you have and allow them, actually you said word of mouth, to be your spokespeople to let others know, like, this this firm is so different from the other ones out there, the competitors. They care about the customers that are on board, not jumping out to the to find new business all the time. And that's what I'm seeing with my own competition um, in the business world, as well as customers that I have that just always worried about finding new customers that, you know, they're not so focused on what can I do for my current customers. Mm -hmm. 100%. And a lesson I have learned in more recent years is you do definitely need both pieces so you need the distribution you do need to be attracting and acquiring new users and new customers but i think most people have completely the wrong split so they're like 95 percent focused on the next customer if not 100 percent, and they almost entirely neglect their existing customers i think a much healthier thing is say 50 50 because that way you're going to get maximum growth. You're going to really look after and nurture the existing customers, but you definitely should have that distribution strategy alongside that. And do you, do you use social media also to uh, develop your community, or how are you using social media? Yeah, I love social media. And 
I'm having a lot of fun with it right now with my personal brand, for example. So I'll give you an example and I'm, I'm not even going to mention the links. Like I, I don't need to plug it up or anything, but just as a case study, um, yesterday I launched a Patreon. Do you know what that is, Eileen? No, I don't. Um, so it's a platform, uh, quite often meant for creatives and it essentially gives you a platform to let you make a membership site or something like that, but it's very slick and you can release content. People sign up for a certain tier. They pay a certain amount a month or per piece of content and then they get access. So for example, if you were doing this show, you could say like, give me $10 a month and you get access to each episode. And so this was a great example yesterday of something where I love using my social media because for the last six months at least, I've been very hot on Instagram. And all I've been doing is responding to hundreds of comments a week and 40 to 50 DMs a day with people asking me free consultancy advice. And I encourage that. I keep saying, come and ask me. Like, I just want to help all of you. I want to help all of you. And it got to a point recently where I've been doing a weekly call trying to help people with more free advice and i just thought this is so good we need to find a way to scale this and so my own followers were like why don't you do a patreon and that way you can scale this out so i used instagram i put out some messages around this and put it in my stories and there's now uh we're about to hit 50 patrons who signed up in the first day and that's nuts. But for me, it's been like a perfect example of how social media should work. I've said to them, I have no interest in your money. I think I made it a dollar because I said you need to do that as a minimum to provide some kind of filter. But I said, look, I can make this $10, $100, whatever. I don't want that. I don't want your money. So I'm making it virtually next to nothing. But the amount of DMs that I've been getting and interactions I can have and the people that have been signing up, Eileen, have been the people where they're all messaging and saying, you know what, you've been helping me for the last few months, completely free, like I want to support you and I trust you and I know that you know your stuff because you've been putting out content, providing value, bringing value and you're never trying to extort anything out of anyone. And I just think that kind of sums up my thoughts around social media and how people should act in a world where everyone is just spamming their product the whole time. It's like, how about actually building a real community, caring about people and, and setting up hundreds of relationships where instead of using, you're serving. And then when you actually do put something out that you're proud of, people jump all over and want to support it because that's how reciprocity and relationships work. I, I just love what you just described because, like you said, when I am invited to join a group or social, you know, social media group, um, some groups actually say don't sell within the group. So that's part of, you know, keeping within certain guidelines. But in general, um, I find, like you said, when you're part of a social media group, people are constantly using that to pitch, to pitch me something. And it's a turnoff. Mm -hmm. I just, when, uh, when certain people continually are pitching me, I don't, I don't even open up the email. I don't look at their comments because I know it's all a pitch. Um, but with um, what you just told me, that is what I thought, you know, way back when, what, that social media should be about, just sharing, educating, and bonding. And mm -hmm. that's what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're not uh, asking for anything from these people. No. Yeah, and you're... you're you're, you're freely giving out information. Yeah, and I, I'm in really committing to that because I've consulted before, so I know exactly my rate of how much I could be charging. But I say to people, I run my company. You know, I'm CEO of my company. That's my day job. I don't need or want your money. I do this on the side. I do this as my hobby because I'm passionate about it because my favorite thing in the world is running up to my girlfriend and saying, you know that guy I've been on a call with for the last three weeks? Like, he was in debt and now he can pay his mortgage because of the changes we implemented. And I really love that. But I, I also, I pay attention. I dig. And there's a lot of people out there who say, I love helping. And then you message them and say, Hey, could I get some advice? And they say, no, only if you buy my premium course. So I think if you really love helping, then help people. Like I, I don't know how many marketing dollars I've, you know, not asked for, particularly in the last six months of building my personal brand. 
but I don't care because I think that's the way that you build a brand. It's not by extorting short-term money out of people. It's by trying to help and provide value to as many people as you can physically muster. And that's how you build a reputation. And that's how people start spreading the good word about you. And that's how you build trust. And all of these things that are so much more important to me than like short-term consulting bucks because I'm trying to build an audience and a brand for the long term. I totally agree with you, and that's something that I think everyone listening needs to perk up and understand. Uh, I think the, um, like you said, the role models, a lot of the gurus and role models that we have out there, when I go to a, an event, um, there's always a pitch, and like I know it's coming, or it's coming throughout the whole presentation, mm-hmm. and Yes, I know they have, you know, I, I understand on the one hand, being a business person, that they have to build their business. They have to continue to sell. But on the other hand, it's just irritating that is that why, you know, thinking in the back of my head, is that why I'm here that you've set me up now to buy your next product or your upsell from what mm-hmm. I just bought? Yeah, and- it's so frustrating. The classic uh, webinar or, or live thing, right, is yes. the whole thing is building up your problem. Here's your pain points. You're nodding along and going, yes, yes, I need help with this thing. And just building up anticipation. And then right at the end, it's like, oh, by the way, I'm not actually going to tell you how to do it unless you buy this premium thing. And I hate that. It's everything that's sleazy. It's it's everything that I pulled myself away from. And it's interesting that so many people, I mean, even my own clients have fallen into that trap. And it was like, why are you working with me when you just joined a mastermind that was going to do that same thing to you that I'm not doing to you. Um, but, uh, you know, people fall into that trap because they, they hear, like, like you said, uh, they, there's a description at the very beginning of all the challenges, all the pain points, and you have the impression that that person who's leading the mastermind or leading that group is going to solve all of them. And what they're really doing is, like you said, they're just pitching to get you on board in the end. Because I've taken a lot of these um, mastermind classes mm-hmm. and, and uh, programs. In the end, I'm still stuck with some of the same problems. Some of yep. the same issues, have they've not been resolved. So it's all, uh, like you said, kind of sleazy sort of <laughs> come on advertising that um, does not serve the customer. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe I'm being an idiot with my approach. I don't think I am. I love it. And it it's what fulfills me. But there's people all the time where they might be partners of ours. And I'm literally giving them free consultancy in cases of helping them like 10x their business, see tremendous growth. They're even offering me and saying, let me pay you for this. This is ridiculous. And I still say, no, don't worry about it. And quite often they ask why, and I explain to them, I say, look, I'm not doing this to make short-term cash. I'm doing this because I love it, but equally I believe in karma. I think these things come back in a positive way. I think it's how you build reputation. It's all the stuff I explained to you. And amazingly, this cool stuff does happen as a result. Some of them have been hooking me up with like conference organizers to help launch my speaking career. And others have just been pushing back and trying to do amazing things for the partnership that I never asked them to do. It's just because they want to give back because I gave so much to them freely. And if I had to turn around after our first call or whatever and said, look, I want your money now. Otherwise, I'm going to withhold all this information. That sets a bad precedent. So there's nothing wrong with selling, but don't try and bait and switch people. Don't try and trick them into doing it. When you're selling, be upfront about it. Be super proud. Be like, I listened to everyone. I created this thing. If you want it, it's really going to help you for these reasons. Go get it. That's fine. But stop like pushing it in people's faces and stop tricking them into getting it, uh, you know, behind the subterfuge of caring and giving and helping when you don't actually care about that stuff. How do you feel about um, some of these uh, group, very large group conferences where people get all excited I know a lot of people love that kind of thing where, you know, they, you know, are in a group of a thousand people or 500 people or whatever in a room. And, you know, you have somebody who's famous on stage or they, they bring in some other guests, whatever. 
Um, do you feel like, uh, in some ways though, that that is just like a cheerleading, you know, it's just a setup. I, I, I sometimes I'm just feeling when I've gone to, I don't go to those big conferences anymore because I realize that at the end of it, yes, I got all riled up and I've got, I've got kind of inspired, but then when I go back home and think about like, you know, all the things that were said, I mean, there's not enough meat <laughs> and there was a lot of uh, mm-hmm. hype. There was a lot of hype. Yeah. So conferences are an interesting one and I'll be completely honest. I've only started going to them more recently because for a lot of years, I mistakenly thought they would just be a waste of money and time. And I was so focused on building my business. And now we're getting the name out there more. I think they're a, a big part of our strategy, especially as I'll be speaking at some of them. But I completely hear what you're saying, Eileen. And I have been to quite a few meetups around London. And I think especially entrepreneurial and business ones have a real sleazy feel to them oftentimes because you know marketers entrepreneurs oftentimes they're kind of out for themselves and you know i am one so i i'm I'm not trying to kind of diss on anyone um but i've been to these meetups and people are like giving you their business card before they know your name they're trying to pry and like pretty much flat out ask you how much you make to see if that you're worth a conversation um and what happened was i would normally go and find like the one or two normal people at these things and go and get drunk with them in the corner and just avoid everyone else because I, I hated that kind of stereotypical like networky stuff. And what I found is this year we went to Creative South, which is an amazing conference in Georgia. And for me, everything about that was how it should be done. It's got this saying where it's like come as friends, leave as family. And it really was that. It was much more about the connections. Um, and despite of that, I still think probably the least useful element of the whole thing was the speeches. And that's not saying the speakers weren't good. Some of them were great. But that didn't really give me the the takeaways um, and the connections and everything like that. So I think whenever people talk about conferences, they quite rightly say it's going to be the friends and the connections that you make there. That's going to be where the value comes from, not from the speakers. Because the speakers are what you experienced, where it's that temporary jolt of like inspiration, but often nothing more. And so when we went to Creative South, we were just ourselves. I, I went with our creative director, Matt, and we basically spent four days day drinking margaritas with people and making about one to 200 new friends. And so when we got home, all these awesome like business opportunities opened up without us being pushy. It was just a serendipity of we hit it off with some people and then continued the conversation when we were back home. So for me, like that is how to do conferences. And I think if you're at a conference and feeling like it's really sleazy and everyone's trying to force a business card in your face, then you're probably at the wrong conference. I totally agree with you. I just came back from a mastermind conference. And like you said, I, uh, I met people that I'm going to stay in touch with that I totally had synergy with in terms of uh, what we felt about uh, building our businesses. We weren't selling to each other. It was pure closeness of uh, friendship and depth and, you know, not what it should be, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it should be. You know, we're colleagues. There's some overlap in what we do, but um, we're, we're not there to compete or sell each other anything. We were totally, like you said, we, we, we would go off and have wine, a glass of wine together or mm-hmm. have lunch or dinner together. Um, camaraderie. It was total camaraderie. Yeah. And I love that. It's, it's nuts to me. Like some of these meetups I've been to, I just think surely you can't behave like that in real life. I think people slip into this weird gear because they slip into networking mode and it would be the equivalent of going on a first date and sitting down and being like, you have probably noticed I'm a muscular man. I am particularly charismatic. I earn this salary and I think I'd be a good specimen for you. You know what I mean? People don't talk <laughs> like that. You sit and um, you sit and you build rapport and you chat about nonsense and you make each other laugh. And if you can do that with people at a conference, they're the people who are worth sticking in touch with. I totally agree with you. So um, we're getting toward the end of the program, but I did want to find out um, 
how can people get in touch with you and your firm? I know you said you have um, some blogs and um, some social media. How can they connect in with that as well as um, connect to you directly? Perfect. Well, first of all, I really, really enjoyed being on, Eileen. It's been a really fun chat, and I love where your head's at with all of this stuff. Uh, in terms of finding me, it's designcuts.com. It's my main company. So if you're a creative or designer, that's like the place to go and find the best assets to help you save time and money in your work. And the community and the team are super lovely. So they'll look after you really great. Uh, in terms of my personal stuff that I'm building and really passionate about, you can find that on all podcasting platforms as well as YouTube. Uh, and it's the Honest Entrepreneur Show where I basically don't hold back. You can probably tell from this episode, I like to be very candid. And finally, if you want to hit me up on Instagram, I'm at Tom Ross Media. And feel free, if you want to send me a DM and literally let me know that you listen to this show, then I would love to just appreciate you and say thank you and answer any questions you might have completely free, no upsell, no product pushed in your face, none of the nonsense, which we've kind of hated on today, Eileen. Um, but yeah, that's it really. Well, that's fantastic. Um, is there something that you would like to share with the audience that they can um, take back to their own businesses that would um, amplify their own businesses? Is there, is there something that we haven't talked about already that uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, definitely. So something that I'm really hot on right now is the one to one approach of marketing because i think what everyone does is especially when they're small they make the mistake of trying to go scalable so let's say on their social media they do what i like to call shouting into the void they're just bellowing their message out there and wondering why no one's responding or engaging and no one seems to care and i'm a huge believer in building engaged communities but i think the best way to do this is one person at a time so you can literally say you're on instagram you can engage with someone, comment, eventually be in the DMs, and you can be chatting and building friendships, helping them and sending each other video chats and that kind of thing. And when you do that and build up a 100 people, say, that you're doing that with, watch what happens because suddenly you're not shouting into the void anymore. You actually have connections in the community that care about you and your content. And I just think everyone needs to stop thinking so damn scalable. Like when you've got no audience, and no connections and no one cares stop trying to think of these scalable marketing hacks and go out there and actually provide value and get to know people one person at a time which platform would you advise um doing that on would that be the instagram or which uh what, yeah I, uh, would I, you suggest i think any platform that is open-ended and what i mean by that is it's perhaps a little trickier on facebook um, unless you're part of a group or something like that where you can get involved because generally Facebook profiles are shut off and more private. But you can absolutely do it on something like Instagram. Very hot on that right now. You can do it on Twitter. You can even do it on LinkedIn. I just think what you need to do is work out who your ideal people are, where they hang out, and then go and immerse yourself in those communities, not in a spammy, pushy way like we touched on, but in a helpful way, in a fun way, in that conference mindset of trying to get to know people because you're genuinely interested and get to bring them value and care about them. But just go immerse yourself in your community wherever you can. That's great advice. I really uh, appreciate your saying that to our audience. And um, I will follow some of the things that you've suggested because it, it all makes sense. And it, it is a different mindset, a way of approaching building a community and touching somebody's life and, and uh, making a difference. I, I've got a final like 10 second tip if you want it, Eileen. Okay. So um, how about this? You've got an audience. People generally never hear um, from people where they're not pushing something. It might not be a product they're pushing, but it's normally like check out my new show or my new piece of content. So I think one of the best things you can do, especially if you've got an email list or something, is send an email and just say, I put this thing together for you guys no strings attached just to say thank you i appreciate you being part of my community i've listened to some of your pain points so i put together this product it might be like a little mini product and it is completely free there's no upsell there's nothing 
attached to this. It is just my way of saying thank you to you. And then watch what happens. I love that. So, um, Tom, it's been a pleasure to have you on my show. You've given us some very, very useful tips to think about and grow, use to grow our businesses. Um, I would uh, love to have you back some other time. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you're an example of a true, um, authentic uh, business leader. And even though it's been trial and error, you've basically learned, you know, what makes a business grow and what what makes it valuable uh, to both the customers and to your internal team. So congratulations on that. And we're going to um, end our show by just saying that uh, if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to get uh, in touch with me. And, of course, you can also get in touch directly with Tom. And you can get in touch with me at info at thebalancemillionaire.com. And we'll be here every Wednesday night, 6 p.m. PST, 8 p.m. Central, and 9 p.m. EST, and if you're international, um, you can, you know, figure out what that time zone, the time zone is, but we appreciate your listening today and tune in to future shows. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Eileen. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning into The Balanced Millionaire with your host, Eileen Mendel, CEO of InnerEdge International, business consultant, multimedia marketing expert, renowned speaker and author. Connect with Eileen Mendel, The Balanced Millionaire. Increase your confidence, creativity, balance, awareness, direction, motivation, and catapult your business to the next level and beyond.